is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. Today, Tim Cleath, a certified hydrogeologist, will explore water issues on the Central Coast. For rainfall falling on the ground, you really need to get about six or eight inches just to saturate the ground before you get the main rainfall. Also, we'll hear from Libby Agron, the founder of the Wine History Project of San Luis Obispo County. Most of them were thinking about, you know, vegetables and fruit trees, and they weren't necessarily thinking about grapes as a crop to make wine. These stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, January 9th, 2023. I'm Carol Tangeman. Let's start with Agenda Breakdown. Welcome to Agenda Breakdown, a podcast that explores how cities and counties make decisions and how you can have a say. I'm Kim Bishop, and today we're going to talk about how you can help San Luis Obispo set its budget priorities for the next two years. Every other January, the city of San Luis Obispo hosts my very favorite public meeting, It's a community forum where we all get to tell our city council members how we want them to spend the city's money. And the first time I went to this meeting was about 15 years ago, and a bunch of local kids, mostly middle schoolers, I think, walked up to the podium and they gave these passionate speeches about the need for a public skate park. They were so convincing that a lot of other community members who were there, including myself, ended up supporting their cause as well as our own. And the result was that the city did prioritize the skate park in its next cycle, and that is why we have it today. And this was the first time I really understood the power that individual citizens can have to shape policy in a way that's more specific than voting in an election. So that meeting is coming up soon, and I asked Whitney Santisi, the public communications manager for the city of SLO, to help us understand how the community forum works and what to expect when we get there. Welcome, Whitney. Thank you. Let's start with the two-year budget cycle. Why set budget priorities in two-year increments? Why not just make spending decisions on the fly? Well, the city creates a two-year financial plan so that we can have the biggest impact on city goals. The budget process is an annual process, but the city's financial plan is really a plan to develop work programs that are then linked to city priorities and community goals. When you say a work program, what does that mean? That means anything from a city service or you know a new city program, Um, It could be anything from a project, an infrastructure project, or it could be a special class through Parks and Rec. So it's a wide variety of things, and we try to match up the work that we're doing with the community goals. And what were the budget priorities, those big community goals, for the last two-year spending cycle? For the 2021-2023 financial plan, the city identified several goals organized into four different categories. So we have climate action, open space, sustainable transportation as one, diversity, equity, and inclusion as another, economic recovery, resiliency, and fiscal sustainability as the third, and housing and homelessness as the final. Um, And that's in alphabetical order. Are there always four? No, it really just depends on what 
the community needs are, community priorities are, what's being recommended by the city's advisory bodies. Um, we take a lot of that into account as long as you know it falls within a specific category. We try not to create too many goals just because it's hard to to manage and achieve, say if we had you know 10 or 15 goals, that might be more difficult to achieve over a two-year period than if you broke it down into three or four. Can you give me any examples of some recent spending decisions that were guided by those priorities? So an example of a recent spending decision through the last budget cycle was our DEI grants, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Grants. The city awarded $300,000 to 21 local nonprofit programs that seek to narrow equity gaps in SLO. So this includes after-school programs. This includes college prep programs. This includes Spanish-speaking mental health services and more. This was a direct result of the city identifying diversity, equity, and inclusion as a major city goal. And the funding allocation is part of a wide variety of strategies for the city to make San Luis Obispo a more welcoming, inclusive, equitable, and safe place for everyone. I have another good example of how the goals kind of translate to reality. We invested $15.4 million last fiscal year and $15 million this fiscal year into work that will help us achieve our climate action and open space and sustainable transportation goals. This includes planting more trees, replacing aging city vehicles with electric vehicles, adding EV charging stations in public places, building out an active transportation infrastructure um, that's consistent with our active transportation plan, assessing our community's vulnerabilities to climate change and really planning for that for the future, Um, creating an approach to build collective capacity to adapt and thrive under those uh, vulnerabilities. That's great. It's nice to be able to draw a direct line between this process and tangible results. The example you gave of the DEI grants, so is that something that came from the community or is it something that the city staff came up with as a result of this being a priority? The DEI grants were really a collaborative kind of idea that came from not only city staff working with the community, but also the city's uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion task force that was created to create recommendations on ways the city could better make San Luis Obispo a more welcoming place. It's great to see a concrete example like grants that were given by the city. Um, some of the major goals are a lot harder to solve. Like you're not going to solve homelessness in a two-year budget cycle. What is a more realistic expectation Like when people decide to prioritize something? So we'll use homelessness as an example. Some of the strategies that we included under that goal included creating a new position for the city, which is a homeless response manager. That particular position is responsible for making sure that all city departments are coordinated um, and that we are approaching homelessness and dealing with homelessness in a compassionate and, and coordinated way. That position is also responsible for creating our homelessness strategic plan, and that will be going to city council sometime in the spring. So those specific things are a direct result of that goal being identified, not only by the community through our community priorities survey and our community forum, but also by city council. And how does the city collect input to determine the goals that are going to happen, not just the community forum, but otherwise? 
Our financial planning process spans from usually November to June, the year before the financial plan takes effect. So we have our 2023-25 financial plan coming up. So this year we started in November of 2022 with a community priorities survey. And that really is an opportunity for the community to tell us what their priorities are. That's really our starting point. And uh, we kept that survey open for about a month and received 1,300 responses. And we got everything that you can imagine under the sun in terms of priorities. So what we're doing now is we're taking a look at that survey data, the survey results, and we're also looking at our city advisory bodies. They also recommended priorities. And then we also are working with community groups who recommend priorities. And we're kind of compiling all of that. And we'll bring that to our community forum. And that's an opportunity for community members to learn about the suggested priorities based on all of this input that we're getting. And then tell us their ideas. We have a lot of smart, innovative community members who really care about these priorities and they have great ideas. And so we just, we want to hear from them. You're listening to Agenda Breakdown. I'm Kim Bishop, and I'm here today with Whitney Santisi, Public Communications Manager for the City of Slow. I was taking a look at the survey results, and uh, it's really interesting. You know, most people who responded said they want to change the city goals for the next cycle. They want them to be different than they were in the last cycle. Is that typical? You know, that was really interesting. We've never asked that question. Uh, this is the first time we've included that question in the survey. What we found, though, is that when we listed out suggested goals based on what we've been hearing, a lot of them still relate to the current major city goals. So even if people said, no, we're seeing a lot of those major city goals that we have already identified rise to the top of community priorities list. So so we're also taking a look at the open-ended questions where it's not as quantitative. And so that, I think, is Uh, a little bit more interesting looking at some of the comments and trying to compile the data so that it makes sense and we can develop suggested priorities. Yeah, I was noticing that homelessness, again, was number one by far. I think it was 60-something percent. Mm -hmm. And not too far behind that was infrastructure maintenance, so roads and parks and open space. And I found that a little surprising, too, just because I feel like we've made so much progress in both of, well, in all three of those spaces recently. I mean, it really, to me, demonstrates that we are headed in the right direction as a city, because when I see that, it sounds like the community just wants more of what we're doing. And I think that there's a I think we got over 500 comments on that. And so those are really fascinating and really interesting to look at. And that's the kind of other, you know, here are all the goals we've outlined. Here are our past goals, our past programs that we've focused on, past priorities. But what else should we be considering? And those 500 comments have been really fascinating to read. So the next big public input opportunity is the community forum. How does it work? How's it going to be structured? What can we expect? First, I want to just say the community forum is going to be taking place at the Ludwig Community Center on January 26th from 6 to 9 p.m. To prepare, city staff has been compiling recommendation from council advisory bodies, community groups, and our online community priorities survey that closed in December. We are developing suggested goals and suggested work that is associated with those goals, basically a task list that will help us reach those goals. 
But the community forum will be an in-person, collaborative, and interactive event. Um, It's really meant to not only inform community members about what the potential goals could be, but also get their ideas on how to achieve those goals. So that's what we're looking for. We're looking for people with ideas. And in the past, a staff member has written down those ideas in an individual piece of paper, and people who were there were given stickers, you know, dots, and they could place their dots on the piece of paper with the ideas that they wanted to support. Uh, it was commonly known as the dotocracy, and, and <laughs> that's that part of the joy of the meeting. I understand there will be no dots this year. <laughs> well, we're thinking of it as DOTS 2.0. So (laughs) it's essentially the same type of process, except we are going to be using technology to help us make sure that we can better uh, collect the data. You know, the DOTS are really, really fun. It just takes a lot of staff time at the back end to compile all of that. And we have so much technology at our fingertips that allow us to do the same exact thing, but with someone's cell phone or an iPad. And so The community forum will actually have several information stations. We're not quite sure how many yet. We're still kind of figuring that out. But it'll have several information stations that community members can visit. Each station will have a subject matter expert where they will be discussing the suggested priorities and uh, will have a screen that lists the suggested priorities. And then that expert is there to listen to the community members. So We want any and all ideas. This is really an opportunity for you to tell us what you think we should be doing. Then we'll do an activity kind of like the DOT activity, except we're calling it, you know, DOTS 2.0. Each station, community members can use their cell phone to rank the tasks or the work associated with the different suggested priorities, or they can add their own ideas. And so they'll be able to see the changes and other community input from everybody who's there in real time. And we're hoping that it's going to be really exciting and it's very interactive. And for those who don't have cell phones, they can also participate at each station and a staff member will help them out. Will there be a remote option too? Will this be live streamed? This will not be live streamed. We will be recording it. So I believe it will be posted on the city's YouTube channel following the event. But for anybody who can't attend in person, we do have an email address. So if you have great ideas, please send those to us if you can't attend the community forum on January 26th. That email address is communityforum at slowcity.org. Where can people go to learn more about the whole process? Well, the community can find more information at slowcity.org forward slash budget. That's where we have the previous financial plan as well as a link to the city's financial planning process that really outlines what are we doing in November? What are we doing in January? What are we doing in February? And provides an opportunity for people to really see what those public input opportunities are. Well, thank you so much, Whitney. Really appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. Now it's time for today's action item. The community forum will take place at the Ludwig Community Center on January 26th from 6 to 9 p.m. Before you go, take a look at the results of the online survey that closed last month. There were 1,300 responses to that survey, and seeing what other people prioritized may help guide your own thoughts about your priorities. I'll post that link in the show notes, but you can also go there directly at slowcity.org slash opencityhall. 
Today's episode was produced by Samantha Reardon with music by Wes Bishop. If you liked the show, you can go to agendabreakdown.com to listen to past episodes and follow us on social media. You can also find us and subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Bishop. Thanks for listening to Agenda Breakdown. This is KCBX, Public Radio for the Central Coast. This is Issues and Ideas. Up next, correspondent Stu Soren speaks with Tim Cleath, a certified hydrogeologist, about water issues on the Central Coast. As we continue to explore the effects of climate change on our Central Coast, fresh water continues to lead the conversation. In our last interview, we learned that the county of San Luis Obispo relies on groundwater for 80% of its deliverable product. With the everyday stories of residential and farming wells running dry and farmers removing crops due to lack of water, we realized that groundwater was a topic we needed to explore. I am very pleased as our guest today is Tim Cleath. Tim is a certified hydrogeologist and certified engineering geologist in California and vice president and founder of Cleath Harris Geologists. With 40 years of experience and personal involvement with water issues on the Central Coast, and worldwide volunteerism in hydrogeology. Tim, we're so glad to have you here with us today. Welcome. Thank you. Tim, your resume is impressive. You have done so much assessing groundwater conditions and potential safe water development. Your volunteer travels have taken you to Thailand, Nicaragua, Kenya, Rwanda, Spain, Ghana, Uzbekistan, India, Chad, Mexico, Laos, Haiti, Mongolia, and on and on. Obviously, water is a passion, and thank you again for helping so many around the globe and again for being here today. For each one of those places, there's important people that I was able to work with, and that was a pleasure. So, Tim, I recently read an article that stated 50% of the world's population rely on groundwater for their daily drinking water, and 40% of the world's irrigation is by groundwater. So groundwater is equally important to surface water in today's world, and I was actually shocked. I'm a city boy coming from the Pacific Northwest, and groundwater, I had no idea, was as important a feature as it really is. In San Luis Obispo, I don't have the snow of the Sierras coming in your way. You have to deal with what water underlies your property many times. And so water and land go together. When we use the term groundwater, specifically, what are we talking about? It's a simple general term. You could have some very shallow water that's tied into a creek, so if a creek goes dry, the well goes dry. Or you can be in basin areas, which are maybe 2,000 feet deep, and you can drill all the way down there and still get fresh water. And being near the San Andreas Fault and being near the coastline here, you have incredible structure to the geology where in geology you look at sedimentary layers and volcanic layers, you see that they're all kind of intermixed around here. You're a hydrogeologist. Specifically, what would your role be in any kind of a water project? At the beginning with trying to find the water in the first place. And so we go look at the geology, we look at the wells around there and we say, okay, based on that, a certain location is good for the water. Then, then you have to design wells. So uh, you have to say, okay, what's the appropriate size and, and depth to a well to uh, give you the optimum production from the well? And you have to look at the water quality too. So a hydrogeologist, as I do it, starts from the cradle to the grave. We, we look at it 
at the very beginning to trying to develop water, but we also look at how you manage it over time and you look at the impacts that are related to it, where if I put my well right next to your well, your well will see a decrease in production or it could anyway. So we have to look at that. And if we're near a creek, we can dry up a creek. So we have to balance things. Although we, as the, not the owner, we don't have control over those things. We can advise as to the uh, resource, its availability, quantity, and impact. In our area, when you were talking about the geology, as we start at the coast and we work our way inland, are there major differences in the geology and the water that you would find or the types of water that you would find? Absolutely. Many people know about the Passerobles groundwater basin inland there, and that's a sedimentary compilation of deposits. You get to the coast and you see these creek channels like San Simeon Creek or, or uh, Morrow Creek, and they're just thin little ribbons of alluvial stream deposits. And underneath them is essentially a rock that doesn't have very much water. You said, how do you find water? Is there a, a magic potion? I mean, obviously, we, we, we see the guys out there with their divining sticks. I consider that a layman's geophysics. Okay. <laughs> you know, I think it's the first thing to talk when you talk to people is you ask them as the owner of the property, where do you think the water is? and learn about how they identify where the water is. And then, then you say, okay, well, my perspective might be a little bit different than yours. But I can do the dousing. I mean, no problem. I just carry a couple of rods and they cross and you can say, well, it's right here. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's water. That There's a change in the, I believe, the electromagnetic field there. It also doesn't give you a quantitative value. So that I think is probably only good to determine change in electrical field to a depth of maybe 30 feet. So uh, many of them say they can do it to 300 feet. That I would question. Tim, are we seeing more wells built in fractured rock or are we seeing more going into, into aquifers or, or large basins of water in our general area? We're fortunate to have many capable water well drillers in this area. And so it has become more required to go deeper in some areas due to uh, lowering water levels. But sometimes the water's only up shallow. So you have to uh, select the right method for exploring for water so that you can be effective in maximizing the yield that you want to get. When we start looking at subsurface water, is this water all a result of basically rainwater that has entered the earth or underground rivers? How do they start? First thing to remember is, Water here doesn't come from the Sierras. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes people say, oh, yeah, there's a crack or, or you know, it's some, there's a channel coming from the mother load over here and coming our way. Well, it's local rainfall really is what it comes to. Uh, but it's also not just all the rainfall because obviously the rain when the rain falls, it has to saturate the soils first before it might deep, go into the deeper zones. And then it runs off to the streams and the streams can recharge the groundwater. Uh, if you're near the ocean, if I pump a well heavily, the seawater will, uh, in those sand deposits that are sticking out in the ocean, they'll come back in. And seawater is slightly more dense than fresh water. And so as you lower the water levels to sea level, the water from the ocean will go into those aquifers and come towards you well. Wherever that ultimate source of recharge is, 
that you have to understand. And as we're talking about recharge, we've had three wonderful storms come through our area in the last few weeks. Is this the kind of rainfall that we need to start recharging our groundwater? You know, I think it's excellent. Uh, It's really exciting for me to see uh, how the rains have continued because you're saturating the soils first and then you're having streams flowing longer durations. And as they flow at longer durations, there's more water that can go into the ground. So is there any kind of a formula, and I understand you need to talk about saturation, is there any way to know how much of a recharge that's actually given to our groundwater? It's all about how the water gets into the ground. Uh, But uh, if we're talking about streams, I would say uh, once it starts flowing, it will start recharging. But for rainfall falling on the ground, you really need to get about six or eight inches just to saturate the ground before get the main rainfall. Because if you get six inches and then you have three months and then you get six more inches, it'll all be consumed by the shallow soil and, and plants. If you're just joining us, correspondent Stu Soren is speaking with Tim Cleath, a certified hydrogeologist, about water issues on the Central Coast. I hear of monitoring wells throughout the county. What are we monitoring? Water quality? Are we monitoring volume? What, what, what do you typically use those for? It's water level primarily. Uh, Water quality may be uh, something that you will do where you are concerned with contaminants. But what we do, or what the county actually does, is they measure water levels in select wells throughout the county, specifically picked for the aquifers that they're tapping and the locations, and they do it twice a year. So um, over 200 wells are being measured each time. Which leads us to the $64,000 question, how are we doing, say, today versus 20 or 30 years ago in terms of our water volumes? I think that water levels have dropped quite a bit in many areas, largely because people know where the water is and they can extract it, and they're not necessarily considering how it will recharge. And as a result of that, you see groundwater basins being pumped harder than they can reach, replenish, and are, they're considered overdrafted. The Kuyama Valley is a famous one for that because uh, of the heavy agriculture that's going out in that area and the relatively minimal rainfall. So the water levels have declined two, 300 feet. Oh, my. And locally? There are certain areas where it, they've declined much more than other areas. Here in San Luis Obispo, we actually have a surplus of groundwater. But if you go over to Edna, there's a heavier pumping going on and the water levels are dropping. So there's even that close. And then you go to Los Osos and you see how their wastewater plant is being used to replenish the deeper aquifers and uh, it's having a, a positive effect. So they're managing their water and wastewater to uh, improve the situation. And then, of course, conservation is an important thing to consider, too. Are you concerned about where our water levels are today, or do you feel the county is still in okay shape for the time being? I would say I'm, I'm concerned, but I'm not thinking that things are going to hell in a handbasket. You know, there's some things that should be monitored. And then if things need to be regulated so that the water levels can stabilize and actually maybe even rise back to pre-drought levels, that would be a good thing. So a little bit of politics. The county has a groundwater sustainability department. 
We have not had the opportunity to talk to them yet. Do you think that we need more regulatory requirements on the current wells that we have? I think that uh, it's going to be a difficult challenge. I think agriculture has always been one where you say, well, we have to maintain our agriculture. That's, that's kind of a policy of the county. But when it comes to uh, observing that there is very high production from certain agricultural concerns, you have to say, well, how can we appropriately modify production to match our benefits with sustainability? So without naming names, obviously, you've been doing this for a long time in our community. Are you seeing the farmers and the ranchers being more careful today than they were 20 or 30 years ago? There is no doubt about it. Up in the Paso Basin area, an expert in viticulture, Mark Battany, has been doing tests of soil moistures and, and root zones for vineyards and how to manage irrigating those so that you maximize the use of the water. And so I'm seeing some real attention being placed on that. Which is something we all need to be doing. Obviously, conservation is an issue. So I know that the county has also increased regulations for drilling of new wells. And I guess it's becoming very difficult to drill a new well. Is that something that you're having to deal with? Yes. And there's uh, actually kind of a couple of different aspects to that. One is the governor had an order earlier this last year, and I think it was in March, which said that any new irrigation wells effectively need to be evaluated for whether they will have an impact on neighboring wells. And so that requires certain assumptions to be made in terms of how much water they're going to use, how much the well will yield, what uh, what the uh, groundwater characteristics, the permeability of the soils and all that. So we have to do what we call an interference analysis, where if we see the water level pumping in one well as it drops, as you're pumping, will it cause the water level in another well to drop? And if it drops, will it drop significantly so that they won't have sufficient water? And it has to be specific. It can't just be in general. So we are having to do some of those analyses. The second aspect is that Of course, as people look for water at greater depths, uh, there is a greater potential for natural mineralization of the water. And so perhaps up in Paso Robles, if you are familiar with the, the hot springs they have up there, well, that's coming from a deeper aquifer. A lot of people know about the Franklin Pond, and that was an old oil well that was drilled to a couple thousand feet, and it just flows like crazy, Of, but the water is really brackish. So if you drill too deep there, you get into really bad water. And yet they're trying to get more water, so they're trying to drill deeper. So the county requires that deep wells be reviewed for potential for contamination due to the uh, flow of saltier water from certain zones. So I was just reading something about the fact that the deeper you go, the more mineralization there is in the water. And that some of that water actually can be literally thousands and thousands of years old. Is that, is that correct? Oh, sure. Yeah, tens of thousands of years old. Are we actually tapping into that water now? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, how does the water get down to 1,000 feet? Well, you're you know? right. <laughs> it takes some time. It does. And, and if it's been there and just sitting there, well, where is it going? 
And so uh, they do uh, radioisotope dating on the water to tell how how old it is. But when you get water from upper zones, which are fresher or newer, and deeper zones, they'll mix together. And so you kind of get a, an average, you know, so yes. So Tim, what are we talking about? When, just when we, we're talking deeper zones, how deep are we talking? In this area, you generally don't go more than 1,200 feet. Over in Santa Maria Valley, uh, you can go to 2,000 feet. Over in San Simeon, you go to 70 feet. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so it's highly variable. But, I mean, you can drill into the deeper stuff, but that most likely will give you not very much water. And then finally, environmental risks. When we hear of wells drying up and we hear of ground sinking and we hear of some of the other issues, are there any environmental issues that we need to worry about now in our area specifically? When we do studies on groundwater management, uh, they uh, ask that we look at groundwater-dependent ecosystems. And that's areas where the groundwater is rising and actually creating a habitat for fish or plants. And so those are areas where they're wanting to put a particular emphasis. There's no question that as you lower water levels, streams will not flow at as high a rate. They really want you to look at that. So that's the primary environmental concern here? I would say so, yes. Is there anything else that you want to throw in? Is there a question in particular that I, that I missed? Is there anything else you want me to throw in? One of the interesting things that is happening is people are saying, well, where's our next place for looking for water? Yes, we've got dams. Yes, we've got groundwater. Yes, we've got wastewater. We're replenishing the groundwater and treating and maybe actually at one day drinking our wastewater. Or maybe you have seawater that you can desalinate. And the dynamics between onshore groundwater and offshore seawater can be a way where you can actually pump the seawater into a well onshore and not have an ocean intake, which is often a major challenge for getting permitted. Tim, it has been a pleasure having you here today. This has been very informative. I cannot tell you how much we appreciate your time. Thank you so very much. Let's do it again. We'd love to. Thank you. Thank you. That was correspondent Stu Soren speaking with certified hydrogeologist Tim Cleath about water issues on the Central Coast. This is Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. From water to wine, Betsy Nash, the grape nut, starts off 2023 looking back to the beginnings of our 200-year-old wine industry on the Central Coast. Her guest is Libby Agron, the founder of the Wine History Project of San Luis Obispo County. Well, Happy New Year from the grape nut. I know we usually look forward at this time of year, but on our first program of the 2023, we're going to look back, way back, <laughs> way back to the beginning of Slow County's relationship with wine. I hesitate to say that it's just about wine making because there's a lot about grape growing and all the other things that, that go into the wine making history. But I tell you what, we've got the greatest guide, uh, the historian and founder of the Wine History Project of San Luis Obispo County, Libby Agron. Libby, thank you for coming out on a cold and, and rainy day. I really appreciate your taking the time. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. And I was thinking about how to, how to start the new year, and it just seemed perfect. I, I know that 
the end of the year was a rough one for you, as it was for me. So again, I appreciate your time. We're going to talk about how this all started. Libby, it's always been my assumption that the people who built the mission in San Luis and San Antonio, San Miguel, all of our other missions, brought vines with them. Is that what we're talking about, about starting the history of grapes and wine in Slow County? Well, yes, in a way, but we actually have natural grapes that were growing here that were used by the Chumash for food, not, not to make a beverage. Um, but really the history that we have in our county today is multifaceted from many, many cultures. And that's one of the things I love because not only has it brought the individuals here with their culture and their agricultural practices, mm-hmm. but it's also brought diversity of the grapes that now oh. are used to make the wonderful wines we enjoy. Would it be safe to say that, except for those that the Shumash were eating, that everything else that produces wine in this county was brought from someplace else? Yes, um, most all of the, the varieties here are from some other part of the world. And it's because those domesticated grapes were domesticated in whatever place, Central Europe, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, or in other places. So going back in history, just realize that grapes were probably fermented and made into a beverage at least 10 to 12,000 years ago. Mm. Our current exhibit at the Paso Robles Museum actually traces the history back 8,000 years. Wow. In our county, each culture that arrived brought their own cuisine and brought their own grapes and wine tastes. Mm -hmm. They didn't always bring the grapes with them. Um, So let's start back to the early explorers who really first settled here. Okay. Which were the Spaniards. Right. The Spaniards were very interesting land use planners. I, I don't think anyone's really thought about that, but Father Sarah if everyone would really spend a little time looking into his background, he actually was a a person who knew agriculture, knew climate and microclimate. And his job was actually to go up this coast of California and pick a spot for each mission and determine what crops could be planted Mm. there. That Mm -hmm. was his main job. He Mm. was there only for a week or so, and then he'd move on to his next destination and come back and revisit. But because the Spaniards were using that method of let's, find a location where we can grow everything we will need to live and produce the food and the flowers and all the other things. Oh, I never thought about that. Yes, it's very interesting. So they brought everything from roses and lilacs to Hmm. cherry and apricot trees, avocados, grapes, you know, things that we still grow today. That's Hmm. what's so amazing about our county Mm -hmm. is our heritage came from the plants and cuttings that they brought. I knew that they had to find a place where the soil was sticky enough to hold together to make the adobe to build the walls. But I hadn't thought about what they planted. And of course, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, so what did the landscape look like then? Well, as they were moving along the coast, and you know, for the most part, these uh, missions were within 25 miles of the coast. It was a very uh, rolling hills and mountainous uh, type of a landscape covered with dense forest. And you know, in California, our native trees are the oaks. We have many varieties, but it was a very dense forest of oak trees in our particular county. Well, where would we look for something like that now so we'd know what that looked like? You would probably drive Highway 46 west and turn into the Adelaida district. Okay. Uh, so primarily west of Paso Robles, uh, near York Mountain Road, you'll oh. see dense forests. Okay. 
And you'll notice the rolling hills and the valleys. Okay. In our landscape, it was always a combination of rolling hills and valleys so that you could use the landscape in the gravity <laughs> downward oh, to move sure. things. Sure. Uh, that's, oh. that's, that was important. So the trails that the Padres and their workers created were primarily from whatever location in San Miguel or San Luis Obispo down to the coast because they needed to ship things out and sure. they, they received many shipments from Spain. We have the logs that we can look at at the Santa Barbara Museum and see what was being brought in and you'd be astonished at the variety of groups of plants, of textiles, furnishings. These were all brought to our county and absorbed into our culture that we have today. It's easy to see that we are not totally dense of forest anymore. Um, what caused it to change? I was thinking maybe it was cattle. Well, cattle had a role in it, but really what happened, if you think about it, we were under a Spanish control. Then remember there was a war that against Mexico. Right. Mexico's won. So they came into California and looking at our county, but also looking through the entire state, they divided it up into ranchos. Right. And we have a lot of those names in our local and uh, titles in our cities and highways today. Right. Sure. Their period was relatively short here. It was from 1832 to 1846. So they divided up their land, they created ranchos, but they adapted the crops and the cattle and sheep, which had been brought by the Spanish, mm. into their economic model. So the ranchos were large. Uh, they had already been deforested to some point, and that continued to create grazing land mm -hmm. and agricultural land. But everything changed with the gold rush. Oh, so when gold was discovered, it's hard to remember that in Europe there were famines, there were droughts, um, terrible wars, lots of things were creating a push uh, to get people to leave that mm -hmm. area. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that San Francisco became the magnet when gold was discovered. If you can imagine, we had around 8,000 people um, in, generally in Central California before the gold rush. During the first two years, uh, by 1850-51, we had over 300,000 people coming into San Francisco. They were followed by a wonderful group of nurserymen. That means people who lived on the East Coast who had already gotten into the plant world and were bringing plants from Europe and creating uh, all kinds of fruits and beautiful Zinfandel grapes. They were planting in Long Island and upstate New York and trying to uh, use, they were using hothouses and they were developing that Victorian taste that we always think it was kind of for sweets. Oh. So Zinfandel grapes became very important in that because the taste, the profile of flavor was exactly what people loved for dessert. Oh, no kidding. They were not making wine with them. They were thinking them as a food product and the whole nursery business just a in the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s on the East Coast had just blossomed. Hmm. So nurserymen saw the gold rush as a wonderful chance for them to create trade to bring plants, trees, orchards, all kinds of agricultural plants to feed people because there was no food growing here that was domesticated. Right, <laughs> good point. So gradually, by about 1850. Two, three, four, five, you know, the gold began to peter out mm -hmm. and there began to be quite a migration of people coming south into the central coast and then further south into Southern California. Partially that was because of discrimination against French, English, German trappers and 
gold miners who Americans felt were interfering with their rights to have uh, claims and to, to mine the gold. Mm. So what we had were these groups of nationalities and ethnic groups moving into central California. Some things don't change. You, you know, migration because of discrimination. Yeah. That's right. You know, too bad. Libby, which ethnic groups did we see here on the Central Coast? Well, starting in about the 1860s, um, we began to notice groups of Germans, groups of French, groups of Swedish, Norwegians. So there was the, quite a mix of yeah. people. First they came as individuals, and then later they became, by the 1880s and 1890s, tended to come in groups of Swedes and establish a, a group, let's say, working in Templeton or a group of Germans living in the area east of Paso Robles. Mm. And we in our downtown San Luis Obispo had two very important Frenchmen, and there were a number of Englishmen coming into the area, which we now call Arroyo Grande. All of these people were well-educated, recognized the Mediterranean climate that we have. Yes. And we're familiar with plants and agriculture that might grow and thrive here. Most of them were thinking about, you know, vegetables and fruit trees, and they weren't necessarily thinking about grapes as a crop to make wine. I understand. They had to feed the people that were moving here exactly. and lived here. Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah. But it was the Mediterranean climate, I think, that caused many of them to stay here. And what's been interesting is they continued as to be very close-knit in their ethnic communities, although friendly with everyone. Mm-hmm. And because of that, and because of the Homestead Act, which uh, allowed them to basically homestead a piece of property of about 160 acres mm-hmm. for at least five years... Now, when they did that, they had to agree to build on it and to plant crops and make it a viable economic model on that 160 acres if they wanted to keep it in their own names. But may I ask you a question about that, though? We were broken into ranchos. Did the homesteaders, they weren't buying it from the rancho owners then. They were buying it from the government? That's a really good question. Well, once the Mexicans were defeated, immediately the U.S. moved into California and it became a state. They divided it into counties, and the Mexicans were able to continue owning their land, but what immediately happened is that property taxes and um, various other taxes were levied upon them and had to be paid in American dollars. And, of course, they didn't have American dollars. So they ended up selling those properties uh, in many cases, not all. I mean, we still have some very large pieces of property in this county, Mm -hmm. which are part of the original rancho. Uh, And we do have uh, descendants of the Spanish and the Mexican families Mm -hmm. from the 1800s uh, that continue to own that land, which I'm very happy to see. Yes. But there was a lot of change because we broke California up into counties, and San Luis Obispo County was one of the original 27 counties established. Okay. And we had wealthy people here, powerful people here, but we also had this mix of immigrants bringing in new money and new skills. Mm -hmm. And it actually worked out quite well where uh, people were able to, uh, certain land was able to be homesteaded, certain land could be purchased. Um, Most people had um, a minimum of 40 acres. Some had larger amounts if they homesteaded. Right. If you're just joining us, this is Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio. The grape nut, Betsy Nash's guest is Libby Agron, the founder of the Wine History Project of San Luis Obispo County. So we have a lot of people moving in, and the cultures are... um, 
getting along and learning from each other. What's the next step on our road to wines? The next step is that people began to realize that we had this incredible climate for growing grapes, among all other things, and they began to look at what grapes were would make good wine. Mm-hmm. This was helped along by um, the formation in California of viticultural commissions that worked with each district or county to help them figure out what to plant. Oh, it's an amazing model that led to the county fairs as we know today. Mm. Um, the model encouraged small villages or little townships to have competitions and vegetables and fruits oh, and things. I see. And as those local fairs then became, uh, you know, a mid-state fair and then a county fair and then a state fair, that system was very important in bringing to light the products that, that worked, including grapes. Oh, interesting. Okay. So those plant nurserymen that I mentioned earlier that brought all kinds of plants to California were part of that county fair system and, and it helped them go in and help them figure out exactly what plants kind of in the father's era mode of what would grow best in each county and okay. that consists that continues to, to this day UC Davis has a program which they have maintained the University of California has been very active in this for many years and we have a wonderful office in our own county that helps us with irrigation and climate change and plants and uh, those experimental plantings um, and is a guide for people who live in this county. So that's the cooperative extension from UC Davis? Yes, Mark Batney is the person that I've worked with in the county and um, he is sponsored by the University of California at UC Davis, um, but it is part of cooperative extension. So that continues as well. I'm seeing a lot of themes here, things that have stuck around because of the gold rush or because of migration or because of whatever. That's interesting. Not everything has changed. That's true. We have patterns that repeat themselves. So what we do see is in the 1860s and 1870s in downtown Slow, for example, we were lucky enough to have several French immigrants who recognized the climate and Pierre Daladay was one of them who in the 1860s married into um, a Mexican family and was able to accumulate enough cash through his carpentry business to buy property which was much of San Luis Obispo downtown as we know it today. Oh, okay. His uh, property, uh, since he was from France and was familiar with vineyards, he, he saw a perfect uh, climate for it. He planted uh, at least 14 acres. The records say he had over 125 varieties that were planted oh my gosh. during a 20-year period. He became the first bonded winemaker, uh-huh. and he also became the first bonded distiller. Distilling is something that the Padres had brought with them because it was a way of making a concentrated wine that could then be easily preserved and shipped. Because if you make wine and you didn't have the techniques and technologies we have today and the temperature control, you couldn't really ship it too far. It was something that was consumed. Yeah. Quickly. Tell me what year we're in right about now with Daladay. Um, in the 1860s, 1870s, 1860s. Okay. Uh, up until about the 1890s, okay. he began to lose control of his finances through some misadventures with his elder son. And he gradually lost a lot of the property, which is now the downtown area of of San Luis Obispo. But what's important is he left the heritage from his French culture 
in the form of the Dalladay Adobe. Yes, I love it. In downtown San Luis Obispo. And that's something that's open to the public. But that one block that's left, if you can imagine, that's where the winery was located. And the vineyards went all the way from the uh, Dalladay Adobe on Pacific Street uh, to the Mission today. Oh, okay. And he was inspired by the fact that the... One of the things that inspired is where the grapevines that were still somehow struggling to live at the mission, which had long been transferred to private property or had either been abandoned vineyards or in some cases leased them out to others. Okay, but there still were some when he was there. He could see we're almost, what are we, 90 years after? The mission was truly built and functioning by the late 1790s. Uh, we don't know exactly when the vineyards were planted there, but we're guessing by 1800, we have mm. some evidence that okay. they were definitely there. Cuttings from those mission grapes, because it was the mission grape that was brought by the Spaniards, can still be found in our county. We've been documenting them, and they were spread to the San Miguel Mission, to the Ascencia, which is now part of the Santa Margarita Ranch, right. not to the Edna Valley. They had to be near water. That was the agricultural techniques the Spanish used involved water. Sure. They didn't dry farm. I know lots of people think they did, but they irrigated. So they were the first to bring irrigation to our county (laughs) and water use. Um, What's interesting, though, is that the French then were more in the downtown area with people living nearby. So there there were farmers' markets where grapes were sold. Mm. Mr. Dalladay's winery, as I said, was the first commercial. So he was actually making a lot of wine, and it was distributed, and it was in some cases quoted to be as fine as French wine, Mm. made from Mission grapes, but from a variety of French grapes. Right. Out of hundreds that he planted varieties my god yes and we're trying to document all of those now if you remember um there was a phylloxera epidemic you know phylloxera is an insect which goes for the roots of the vine and it really hit very hard in france and in san francisco we had a france embassy or consulate and that consulate reached out to all the French people that he knew were within California to give them cuttings brought mm. from France mm. to plant in the hopes that they could get rid of the phylloxera and then take cuttings from the new cuttings and send them back to France to reestablish the various varieties that were wiped out. So Mr. Dalladay was an important part of that, and that's probably why he had access to the cuttings of so oh, many I varieties. Oh, I see. Okay. But what's wonderful is that he shared that information. He shared it with people, uh, the Ditmas family and the uh, Hasbrook family who were in the upper Arroyo Grande Valley, who today we can say that the oldest still working vineyard in our county is owned by Sausalito Canyon. And it was started by Henry Ditmas, an Englishman, but revived, luckily, by Bill Greenow and his wife, Nancy, who have worked so hard to continue that vineyard. And uh, the wines that they make are from this old vine Zinfandel that is remarkable. If you're just joining us, this is Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio. The grape nut, Betsy Nash's guest is Libby Agron, the founder of the Wine History Project of San Luis Obispo County. Well, and we're going to pour a Zinfandel right now. You know, I, I didn't bring a Sausalito Canyon Zin. Excuse me. It has some sediment, so I'm straining it and aerating it a little bit. It's a, uh, a 2017 Zin by Glunts 
from Dante Ducey Vineyard. And may I just say how delicious this is. Well, I'm excited that you brought the bottle that shows it's from the Ducey Vineyard because that brings me to the next really important wave um, of of pioneers who came into the county. Um, And that's the Italians. I don't want to skip over the Yorks. I want to go back to that. But but I do want to talk about the Italians for a moment uh, because... The Italians who arrived in our county, unlike other counties of California, were from northern Italy near the Swiss border. Mm -hmm. So they didn't come with any knowledge of winemaking or growing grapes. It was too cold in their climate. So they were wood clearers, woodsmen, as they called themselves, and they were also dairymen. And so when they came here, they came following family members, many from the same village, and created a community which is still very much uh, alive in uh, Templeton in our county. The, one of the uh, interesting families was the Ducey family, Sylvester Ducey. He came to the county um, around 1920 to visit a brother that was already here involved in clearing wood. Oh, okay. Uh, and trees in our dense forest so that there could be fields and uh, uh, grapes and cattle. And Sylvester Ducey actually was very much of an entrepreneurial person, and it was hard labor wasn't for him. He really had accumulated enough money. He was in his forties by this time, and he went into the Paso Robles area, which was developing as a community, bought a hotel, and he established the first delicatessen, Italian delicatessen. Oh. And he had a restaurant. He definitely brought the Italian culture uh, into our community in Paso Robles, and then from there. Um, he began to uh, look at the possibility uh, and discuss with his fellow Italians that were already here in the community the possibility of planting vineyards. Now, they didn't really have any knowledge about this, but what had happened that would cause them to even think this? Well, prohibition had happened. Oh, oh. So, so what's that, 1920? It's, it went into effect in 1920, yeah. which meant that you could not be a commercial winemaker, sell or transport wine. You could make wine at home. You could do um, over 200 gallons, approximately 200 gallons per household. So it's not per person, but per household. (laughs) And Italians, like many cultures, had always made wine at home. Even if they were not really growing grapes, they'd get grapes from a neighbor or something and make their, their wine. And so the Italians in our county realized that in every American city, there was a very large Italian population that needed grapes to make wine and were into home winemaking. So that was one trend going on as soon as Prohibition went into effect. But then home making in general became a huge thing. You'd find ads in magazines. You could buy concentrated bricks of Zinfandel grapes. Oh, no kidding. You could buy juice and you could take it home and do whatever you wanted. You just couldn't (laughs) transport it. You couldn't sell it, but Mm. you could make it. Mm. So the Italians saw a business opportunity. They were already farming. They already had dairy cows. And what they decided to do was, let's plant vineyards. We can ship all these grapes to all these Italian communities. We have connections, because they do. All the Italians at that time had connections one way or another. You couldn't really ship them. You could ship them by train. Oh, no kidding. So if you think about it, you know, it was the 1920s. Yeah. Trains were running. Yeah. We had uh, stations in uh, Santa Margarita area, Paso, and they shipped Zinfandel grapes to the East Coast, but also importantly into California's markets, Los Angeles and San Francisco, which were huge distribution points. 
That was the grape nut Betsy Nash and her guest Libby Agron, the founder of the Wine History Project of San Luis Obispo County. That was part one of Betsy Nash's conversation, and we will hear part two later on in the month. You've been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments, kcbx.org. Thank you.